From the Restoration Archives, this is Light and Truth. This Q&A session with Denver Snuffer was originally recorded in St. George, Utah on March 19, 2017, in front of a live audience. You know, this I can actually make out some of you sitting over there um, with these lights. It's kind of hard to see um, you as well. This is less organized than just both email and written questions. Please explain Brigham Young. Well, there's a period there. Um, no. Why would he be seen in the celestial kingdom with Joseph Smith by Joseph F. Smith? Okay. DNC section 138, which is the vision of the redemption of the dead, was received by Joseph F. Smith in the waning days of his life. The church was facing enormous challenges and problems at the moment. He had sufficient health issues that he was contemplating his own imminent death and uh, concerned about what comes next. The vision of the redemption of the dead has nothing to do with the problems confronted by the institution at the time. It is not an institutional answer. It is a personal revelation to a dying man. It was enough or important enough to him that he returned to the meeting of the First Presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve and said that he had recently received a series of revelations and that he was going to write them up. They were received in the October time frame, written up, read in the conference, and he was dead in November. So the message or the revelation that he received concerning his apprehension about death was more than justified. He was dead the month, the next month. When the document got written up, it got channeled through the uh, First Presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve before it got released. And as a consequence of it getting channeled through, the language had to get approved. 
what Brigham Young is doing in the middle of that doesn't hold any reassuring value to Joseph F. Smith about his imminent death. But it is of great comfort to the church and to the members of the church. And so um, what we do not have is a Joseph F. Smith papers project. What we don't have access to are the minutes of the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve. Those are guarded very selectively. And what we don't know is if the reference to Brigham Young was in the original draft or if it was added by someone, and if so, when. We know all that about many of the Joseph Smith revelations. Now, when it comes to Joseph F. Smith, when he testified in the Smoot Senate confirmation hearings, and he was asked point blank if he'd ever had a revelation, and he denied that he had ever had a revelation, I believe him. I believe that he testified honestly. A month before his death, however, worried about dying, and perhaps more contrite and humble and reflective than he'd ever been in his life, when that rolled past his attention, I don't think he lied then either. What I don't know is how trustworthy the manuscript is because it's really apparent that what came out through Joseph Smith and what got later edited into uh, publication underwent a number of changes for a whole lot of reasons. And so if you want to know what Brigham Young was doing in the vision of the redemption of the dead, which is not a document that appears in this new set of scriptures, as Chris Hamill explained, go ask Joseph F. Smith. It's not one of the questions I put to him, because frankly, I wasn't interested in that. Is it better to sacrifice individual truth-seeking for the sake of marital unity? One of the documents that is in the new um, set of scriptures is the letter that Hiram Smith wrote, his general epistle to the church, giving advice. A copy of that I, I put up on um, my website. You can read it there. But he gives marital advice, and and the relationship between the man and the woman assumes priority above um, religious obligations, um, including even baptism. And so read, get the new scriptures, read Hiram Smith's advice, reach your own conclusion. Oh, yeah. I'm just reading questions. Um, Here's my understanding. The incident involving the Lord and the woman taken in adultery really did happen. And it was a well-known story that had been handed down all the way back from New Testament times. 
but it was never in the record of John. As it turns out, the only place that we have it is in the version of the gospel of John that's been handed down to us. But that got added by a monk who knew, everyone knew the story to be authentic. Everyone believed the story to be trustworthy, but it wasn't in there. And a copyist put it into John's gospel, but John didn't put it in there. So it, it isn't in there. But I don't doubt the incident happened. And I don't doubt that the Lord handled it in the way in which it's told. It's just not John's story. So, uh, okay, I interpret, okay. I don't, I don't assert or claim uh, interpretive authority over the text. I will testify to you that the text is a revelation that it came from God, that it is a gift given to us, and it's his, ultimately everything that, that um, is part of the gospel narrative belongs to the Lord. And therefore, I, um, I believe it would be a mistake for me um, to begin to announce interpretations related to a document when I don't believe that I own that right. And if I do so, I run the risk of cutting off... Um, other people's insight or inspired reading of a text that may bless and benefit me if I were to hear it. If I close their mind, if I shut their mouths, if I get out ahead of them when they have the right to do so, um, then I'm the poorer for that and you're the poorer for that. Joseph Smith once said that he may have made a lot of mistake, mistakes, but there's no mistakes in the revelations, was his way of saying they aren't, they aren't his property. And I think careful and solemn and ponderous thought about what failed before. And the list of the stuff I read that said, this is the criteria of the churches that God intends to destroy, should make all of us look at the life of Joseph Smith, not merely as a marvelous work by a prophet called of God who accomplished great things, but it should make us ask ourselves, why did it result in what we see now? Why did it not result in Zion? Why did it not result in a temple to which 
Christ came to restore the fullness or that which has been lost unto you. Why did it not work? Why is there a multi-billion dollar institution and a number of extraordinarily wealthy splinter cults, all of which have absolutely no interest in turning everything back over to the Lord. What if we don't have anything to give him? What if we don't have an office to bestow upon him? What if we don't have anything other than the one thing he requests, a temple? What if that's the only thing we have to give to him? We don't have a synagogue. We don't have a chapel. We don't have a cathedral. We don't have an executive office building. We don't have a Zion's bank. We don't have real estate developments. We don't have anything to give to the Lord because we gave it to the poor. What if the only thing we give him is the only thing he's ever asked of us? And that is a house where he can come. How much different would all of the whore and her daughter's belongings look? How much different would the people that belong to the faith, how much different would their lives be lived? How much more equal would we be with one another? It's like one of my friend's quips. It's a terrible thing to find out your mother's a whore. And yet that's where, in Mormonism, we largely find ourselves. So let's not build ourselves another whore. So I'm not going to answer these questions. No, I'll answer this one. (laughs) It says on page three, Jesus and his followers were invited guests at the marriage. That's my understanding, not his wedding. Not that he didn't have a wedding. It's just that that's not his wedding. (laughs) Could you lay out the plan of salvation more exhaustively? Yes, I could. Um, Is there a tradition we bought from over in the LDS church where influential people rely on the authority of their person, persona, instead of quoting God's word as they received it? Likely because they haven't actually received it. Do you think we need to be more careful about this? Well, yeah, but I try to be. Oh, this one was good. Okay. Um, see, you can't, you can't just dismiss Sidney Rigdon as an invidious influence. That would be a mistake. Um.
See, Emma Smith was better educated than was Joseph. Emma Smith was a sounding board for Joseph. You don't, you don't need to know much more than one incident in order to grasp what I'm telling you. Joseph Smith is translating the beginning of the Book of Mormon. He finds out there's a wall around Jerusalem. He inquires of Emma, was there a wall around Jerusalem? Emma says, yeah, because she knew it, and he didn't. Emma had a better um, education than did Joseph, and Joseph um, deferred to her and relied on her. The Lord called her an elect lady, and that was not an inappropriate title to have been given to Emma. It's a title that the Lord's given to another woman, about whom a great deal could be said, but I'm going to pass over that. We're talking about Rigdon. Rigdon came to Joseph as an accomplished, polished, Campbellite preacher who succeeded in um, church building, uh, congregation development, um, ministerial persuasion. He was a polished orator, and um, by contrast, Joseph didn't, Joseph was emerging from a cocoon. He was emerging out of a role as a translator. Um, he had not had the requirement to be able to address an audience of any significance at all. And here comes Sidney Rigdon, essentially to the rescue. Here you've got a built-in mentor who is capable of providing Joseph with input about the very role to which Joseph is now being transferred. And Rigdon helped him. Rigdon was so influential that um, even in his late uh, King Follett discourse, he makes an aside to Rigdon. Mark it, Elder Rigdon. I'm going to prove it from the Bible. And he goes on to preach there, showing the influence, the positive influence that Rigdon had on him. The mobbing and the... Um, and the fairly significant head injury that um, Rigdon suffered and his inability thereafter to do what he'd been doing to help before, his um, confinement in the Liberty Jail and how poorly, he was an older fellow, how poorly he fared physically in that environment. There are a lot of reasons why um, Rigdon may have made some missteps. When Christ established and organized the New, the New Testament dispensation, Christ um, patterned what he did as a a reminiscence as an homage to the children of Israel. 
That, that was who he was serving with. It would not go out to the Gentiles until after Christ's death. So during his immediate ministry, Christ was serving among the Jews who notoriously would claim repeatedly they're children of Abraham and that children of Abraham's status gave them a credential with which they could pass into heaven. And so when he structures the incipient stage of the dispensation, Peter, James, and John, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, 12 apostles, 12 tribes of Israel, the 70, Exodus chapter 1, verse 5, 70 descendants of Jacob that went into Egypt. Christ gives an homage, a, a send-up, a mirror, a structure to resonate with the people to whom he was serving. What Rigdon was caught up in the fire of was the Protestant Reformation, which had percolated a couple of hundred years, had never achieved the potential of a return of the spiritual gifts. Rigdon believed those belonged somewhere. The Campbellites did not. And so Rigdon is sort of a renegade Campbellite. And then Joseph shows up. And Rigdon, after the Book of Mormon gets into his possession, leaves where his flock, where his congregational success was. And when he joined, a lot of fellow Campbellites joined as well. He left and he went to Joseph because now everything they wanted to restore the ancient church, they were already working on. They already had faith, repentance, baptism. They already had some expectation of the Holy Ghost. First principles and ordinances of the gospel, they didn't start in the Wentworth letter. They started with Rigdon and the Campbellites, and they were true principles. So Rigdon comes. He's already got this base, this familiarity. And in his imagination, in his mind, what is wanted is getting, we need to fetch us again that New Testament church. If we could get that, I mean, we'd have it all. We could proceed knee-deep in the hoopla, just shouting hooray, because we got ourselves lots of Jesus and an organization too. So Joseph gets confronted with the dilemma of how you organize this thing. And Rigdon, who is trusted and a confident and who has been provided to Joseph for good and sufficient reasons to help Joseph in the new phase, gives the only kind of counsel one would expect from a Restoration New Testament vantage point, and that is, well, Joseph inquire how that got structured, inquired how one might do that. And so the form it takes is the form of a New Testament church. 
And Rigdon is looking for um, and advising Joseph, and Joseph is praying for and undoubtedly having authentic revelations about how you rebuild a New Testament church. And it didn't work. And with time, it managed to aggregate well, the, the very list of stuff I read you, popularity, influence. It's the antithesis of no power or influence can or ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood. Have priesthood? It's nothing. It's no power. It's no influence. What do I do? Persuade. Pure knowledge. Invite and entice. Exactly as did the three men, our Lord being chief of them, who held the greatest dominion in the history of mankind. That's what you do. When you create the structure, particularly a hierarchical structure, you tell me, how does one become of one mind and one heart when there is no equality? It's the problem that Sister Adolfo raised with the difference between religion and institutionalism on the one hand and spirituality on the other. If they are distinct, as she said, and she persuaded me yesterday that they are distinct, then why can we not forget the institutionalism and the religiousness of it all and simply seek the spirituality of it all so that we might one day become of one heart and one mind, as that excerpt from the um, email in the announcement of the Scriptures Project suggested. If we can knit our hearts together, eventually our minds will follow. And some of you are pretty tough-minded. But if we can get your heart, eventually your mind will come around. Rigdon um, wasn't alone in... It's like, um, can you answer this question? Um, whatever the question is. Yes. Should I answer the question? Well, it depends. Where does it go? In the draft of the replacement for Section 20, which you'll find in here, There is a suggestion that one fellowship, if it doesn't have needs, can assist another fellowship by providing them with sharing resources. And I think that should be open and that should be available. But... It should be by common consent. It should be a once-only occurrence. And if it needs to occur again, it should be by common consent and a once-only occurrence because 
when the church at Rome began to aggregate wealth, they used what they aggregated in order to influence and gain preeminence over other congregations in the Mediterranean world. And by the use of monetary authority and the aggregation of political influence, because they were headquartered in Rome, you wound up over time with a universal, hierarchically commanded, vertically integrated church structure in which all you have to do to corrupt the whole is to corrupt the top. In fellowships, if they are all independent and they all are equipped with the same body of instruction and they all function independent of one another, it doesn't matter how corrupt any one of them becomes. You have to go corrupt every single one of them to kill the whole. You can't kill them by corruption of a single influential entity. So I, I think you must be free as fellowships to help one another. But if there is a wealthy, regularly financing fellowship, those who receive from it should be just as concerned about the potential for strings as the people who are giving should be concerned about the perversity of viewing that as an opportunity to gain power and authority over others. The things of God are razor thin. It may lie in a straight course, but the way in which the Lord walks that straight line, he doesn't even cast a shadow to the left or the right. When you begin to see the shadow, you've already departed from the path, even though you think you're still on it. You have to question every step of the way, every step you take, and measure every word you speak, because you're going to be judged on the basis of that. Oh, no, that's too long, and we're too late, and I'm not going to do that. Hey, there's another conference. I keep these. My Boise conference notes are right here. I mean, this is going to go with me to the next one. We'll get to them eventually. Huh. Uh... Jeez, people. <laughs> All right. I'm gonna I'm gonna talk for a moment about um, a context, and I'm only talking about a context in order to answer the question. The context is this. Um, while the um, 
the testimony of John is being put together, I have the benefit of a word processing program. At times, the rate at which the material is being put into the word processing program is so fast that the language is cryptic. I know what it means, and I know what it needs to say, and I'm, I'm getting it down, but it needs to be, it needs to be dealt with. Um, the entirety of the thing gets finished, and as soon as the entirety is concluded, I go back to the very first, and I work it through. And I work it through from beginning to end in order to make sure that the language on what will be paper on the text accurately reflects what was revealed. So I work it all the way through. And when I'm satisfied that everything is there, with one exception, because I fought, I, I don't care that John said it, I didn't want to say it. I fought to keep some stuff out. I figured if I could keep it out, then I could, I could answer a question and say, no, it's not um, complete. Um, and I fought to eliminate one part of that story that I did not personally want to see in there. Um, but it, the project couldn't be done until it was added. And it was the last thing added, and I, I did it, and it's in there. But I went through it again, this time looking for punctuation and extraneous words. I wanted everything to read like we read. It's, this is now. Let's talk like we talk. I mean, these and thous and yees and all that, that, that may have had a place back in colonial America and in, a, in an age where people were still calling one another thee. But today, that's off-putting. And when I went back, I was looking for that, and I found, I think, two of those. And I found a couple of words that were um, in there twice. I don't remember the words at this point, but there were some words that were in there, and same word two times. I had to get rid of one of that. So when that's all done, then I asked my wife to read it, start to finish, not to change it. Um, I asked her to read it to see if there were any errors that she could see in the way the thing was laid out, in the sentence structure, in the... Um, the paragraph division in the, in the overall read of the thing. And she made several comments which helped me and some, some things were um, turned into staccato sentences instead of run-on sentences because short sentences are easier to read than these run-on, run-on sentences. When that got done, I sent it to the committee. And the committee was given free license to do anything with it. I think two people gave to me um, what they noticed were um, ambiguous words that could mean this or it could mean this or it could mean this. And I knew which word meaning it was. So I fixed it. 
And then, <laughs> I don't know which guy on the committee did this, but the idea was to release it as a um, downloadable PDF on my website so we could say, oh, yeah, that's been out there for a while. And no one would notice it. And someone, someone of you dastardly folks, apparently, like, alerted the universe. <laughs> and you can't, you can't tell Adrian Larson anything. And it, it just... And so, whereas it was intended to be here, and we can say, well, that's been up for months. Um, now it's everywhere, and it's, it's been read for months. Um, but I say all that for this reason. That, that's to set this up, okay? Joseph Smith dictated the Book of Mormon to scribes, primary one of which was Oliver Cowdery. Scribes in longhand wrote the Book of Mormon. When he ended one night, set the pen down. When they started the next day, pen is up and he starts talking and no one reads back to him anything to pick up the place. Just continues on. And it goes all the way to the end. And then Oliver takes the whole thing and he recopies it, and he takes it to the printer. And then it gets typeset, and then it comes out in print, and Joseph Smith gets to read the words of the Book of Mormon in the typeset copy from E.B. Grandin's shop. And so far as I can tell from the material I have reviewed, between the time Joseph dictated the Book of Mormon and the time Joseph Smith saw it in print, he had almost no opportunity to do anything with the text. And it doesn't matter what he meant. And it doesn't matter that he could have clarified something. And it doesn't matter if he would have even punctuated it differently. He didn't get a chance. He didn't have a word processing program. He got one shot through it. And that was as he translated it. And then it got written by someone else and it's off to the printer. So... When the Book of Mormon was done in a second edition and Joseph Smith supervised the work, it was the consensus of everyone, myself included, that we shouldn't nitpick Joseph's second edition and go back and say, wait, he altered something from the first because I can't even write a short letter at my law office without rereading it and sometimes correcting punctuation, sometimes rewriting sentences to have them be more clear. Joseph Smith had the right to do that. And so the version that it began with in this volume is the one that Joseph had a chance to deal with. You can argue for the earlier one. You can argue that it was material. And all of that stuff will be in the research notes online and available. We're not going to hide it. But for the published project, the version that he had a chance to work through in the second edition is the one that, um, the one that um, was the starting point. 
Oh, good, I've dealt with that and that. And Jesus would not have been accepted as a legitimate rabbinical teacher if he had not been 30 years of age and married. If he was um, 30 years of age and unmarried, he would have been considered um, illegitimate. He would have been considered, oh, yeah, I probably would have quoted those mission presidents, a hazard to society. But he was addressed and accepted. Um, he had to be 30 years of age, and he had to be married. Okay. Um, the, um, the advice I got was to not even mention this subject, and I wasn't going to do it. But Steph and I will deal with that on the drive home. Um, I don't. I don't claim anything. Um, as far as I can tell, there's only one way in which it, it matters to me. I do not claim anything of any significance associated with the um, the revelation of a new name or the giving of a new name. To me, the only things about it that were noteworthy are I was baptized on September 10th. I was excommunicated on September 10th. I was given a new name on September 10th. And the one that was given on September the 10th of a new name was on, if you do the calendar, 9, 10, 11. And to me, that was an interesting alignment. But I believe that as the, um, as the account accurately depicts, that wasn't happy news to me. To me, it was, um, it was an unwanted unlovely appellation. Understand, the name David associated with other people is just fine. I know a lot of Davids, and I like their name. I have a partner in my law firm whose first name is David. David is a perfectly good name, but David in the words of God is suggestive not of my partner or other people I know and respect, in the language of God, the name is suggestive of only one guy, and he's a failure. And so my, my mind doesn't run to my partner or to other people I know and love. My mind runs to that man. And to me, that man and that context is a harbinger of an ill wind, to say the least. So it wasn't, it wasn't wanted. The response of the Lord after I had finished my complaints and I'd worked myself up into, into being quite obnoxious was so mild but cutting 
that I thought it reflected so well on him that when I was told this has to be included in that project, despite the fact that as far as I was concerned, I was willing to go to the grave with no one knowing a thing about that, I thought that for the most part, the entire way in which that unfolded reflected credit upon the Lord and showed you how a master teacher can convey in the mildest of ways a cutting rebuke to draw a contrast that needed to be drawn between my ingratitude on the one hand and his graciousness on the other hand. And I, I, I think it's about that. Now, I don't make any claim for anything beyond that. And as far as I can tell, this whole thing has only one, has one utility that I have found. When I cannot otherwise get an answer from God to something about which I'm inquiring, I will remind him of the identity that he gave to me and that it is I who makes this inquiry. And when, when that is the way in which the request is um, put, I've never been unable to get from him an answer to whatever the inquiry is. So the utility, if God gives to you a new name, as far as I can tell, its utility is in when, when you're praying and you can't get an answer, remind him who it is that's speaking and that it's the identity that he gave to you and it is that person that is asking and see if that doesn't assist you uh, somewhat in getting an answer. Beyond that, we do not have Zion. We do not have the land and location identified as yet. We have not built a house, and he has not accepted it. Therefore, there isn't anyone who can say they matter a hill of beans. The identity of someone who's going to accomplish work on behalf of the Lord will be known by the work that they get accomplished. Not by writing a vanity blog and barking out your witticisms or expounding on your vanity or writing revelations with a whole crap load of personal pronouns referring to themselves or any other sort of defect that ought to be obvious on its face, but clearly is not obvious on its face because there are a lot of people that give heed to that um, sort of vanity. I'm, I'm at the point, I'm past the point when I said I was going to quit in order to let you people and me get home and me to get a talking to. Um, 
But I hope all of you will feel absolutely at liberty to carefully read and mark and to respond to the project that has been underway. I met with and um, corresponded with and then spoke with the, um, the people who worked on this project. And it goes without saying, but it probably shouldn't be left unsaid. Um, wives helped. Uh, there were women who, who worked on this project as well. We tend not to say that, and I hope you just assume that. But given some of the questions that came in, apparently people don't assume that. Um, which is another thing. I didn't get to that question, but at some point I do intend to address the man and the woman um, issue. Um, a lot probably should be said. I don't, I don't want to write it up. I want, to, I want to talk about it. And the next conference in Boise is going to be dealing with this. Probably be a year from now. But I intend to deal with it. And whether you think I'm hasty or not, I drag my feet on a lot of things to make sure that the Lord leaves me no alternative before I proceed. I am a more cautious man than any of you probably could ever dream. Um... There's, there's still an enormous amount to be accomplished. And there's probably going to be departures. That's a good thing. Because if they're clamoring and complaining and they're like the... Um, the children of Israel in the wilderness with Moses. We left the flesh pots of Egypt to come here and do this. You won't have Zion. We really do want people to expose their ambition. We want them to expose their pride and their arrogance and their vanity and their lusts and their desires. We really do want their complaining hearts and their bitter, acrimonious, and false accusations. We welcome that. Because those are people that ought not be gathered. They should be free to gather into their own collective and do whatever it is they think will bring them joy. But they're not part of God's people and they cannot be broken. Therefore, let God break them. Don't bring them with us. If people decide to depart and have no further going with us, they departed from Christ after his bread of life Talk. 
so many of them departed after the Lord's bread of life talk that he turned to the apostles and said, are you leaving too? Because the greater part of the followers were gone, angry, upset, unwilling. Peter said, where are we going to go? <laughs> Thou hast the words of eternal life. Where else should we go, Lord? Not a ringing endorsement if you think about it. It's like, you suck, but we, that we don't have anything. <laughs> right now, you know, Peter was not given to politically correct analysis. Um. I do hope that you understand how weak and vulnerable and easy to be distracted any man is, myself included. We have one enormous advantage. And that is what Joseph did and what the people who claim to have followed the gospel restored through Joseph did with what he restored. That is an enormous advantage if we will take advantage of it. We don't need to look out there and envy anything because it didn't work. I've said this to the, to the brethren. Some of these men I met for the first time in connection with the scripture project. Some of these friends, brethren to me now, were strangers when this project began. I didn't know who they were or what they were getting me into when I began my participation. And I was gratified to know that strangers to me include brethren in Christ. Every one of them is valued to me now. S some of the email exchange that went back and forth thrilled me with the substance and the light and the truth that was commanded by some of these, these brethren. Clearly, they were called to the task and equal to it and valued by me, valued by the Lord. And putting it all together and combining everyone into one, one group and confronting several imponderable dilemmas um, gave me an opportunity to prayerfully address some issues that are now embodied into the, the text of the proposal and I hope are prayerfully considered by people who are uh, going to evaluate it.
Um, it was a um, it was a privilege, but Chris Hamill is exactly right. This is not my project. I came late to it, and I I helped put the whole group together, and I acted as moderator on a couple of occasions, um, and it 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 got through to this point of completion. One of the interesting things about the um, gathering into Zion is that apparently, although there may be yet more revelations and commandments that roll out, apparently it will be in Zion where the rich treasures of the records of other scattered tribes are to be brought in order for that information or body of material to be reclaimed. If the revelations and the prophecies are correct, the records of the Jews and the records of the Nephites, they get gathered, and they are the first. But eventually there will be many others that get gathered in. Um, the description that's given of bringing the rich treasures unto the children of Ephraim and the everlasting mountains is a description of bringing them into the place that will be built by a covenant people who have the legal right to the land. And first of all, I believe we could choose as a people a place to build a temple and we would get exactly the same response that we see in the Doctrine and Covenants that was given to Joseph when the Nauvoo Temple began. The site that you have selected is acceptable to me. And we probably reached exactly the same conclusion. I will not, therefore, choose a site. If God doesn't choose a site it will remain unchosen. If God chooses the site, it's his. And then he has the responsibility to defend it. If you read about the site selected in Nauvoo, in the Nauvoo site, the Lord said, yeah, that's acceptable to me. And if, and if, and if, then. But if God chooses the site, it's his. There's no if. Well, there might be one if, and that one is, if is, now if you want to live and not be slain by me on the land that I've chosen, then you better be careful. But it's his land. It's his to defend. It's his choice. It's his house. It's his Zion. It will be his new Jerusalem. And therefore, no man is going to say, and if they do say, I'm going to have nothing to do with them. Is this acceptable to you, Lord? It's got to be his. And if it is his, it carries the weight of God having chosen it. He's known where it is for millennia now. And he's had prophets described it. 
It's in the everlasting mountains. It's not on the plains of Missouri. And the people that are going to go there are going to say, let us go up to the mountain where the Lord has an ensign erected. And that will be his house. And he will come and he will accept it or we won't have Zion. We've gone over and I apologize for that, but, but I went to questions and I was, <laughs> I was supposed to cover some of those last points as part of this, so I covered them. Let me end by, um, by bearing testimony to you that however improbable, however unlikely, however even unpleasant it may seem to you that this work is unfolding now, and with the people it is unfolding with, and in the way in which it is happening, however off-putting that may seem to you, the test for you is exactly the same test that has been taken from the beginning of time until now. You wouldn't have liked Moses if you don't like this work. You wouldn't have wanted to be with the people of Enoch if you don't like the people whose hearts are softened and who resonate with the message here. I'm pretty sure in the many mansions that are going to be built for people to occupy in the afterlife, there are going to be plenty of places for folks who hurl groundless invectives at one another, attributing the worst motives to the hearts of one another, where they enjoy the company of one another and retire each night saying, I made a great argument today, and I look forward to getting up and bitching up a storm again tomorrow. I'm not sure what we'll call that creation, but it'll probably have the name of a woman on it. <laughs> now, that's really unfair. And believe me, I'll pay a price for that. The work of God really is of deep import, and the light-mindedness issue doesn't have a single thing to do with a sense of humor or laughter. It doesn't have anything to do with that. Light-mindedness has to do with, with treating lightly things that are really important. Light-mindedness means that you do not assign the correct value to something that comes from God. You treat it lightly. I don't care how much you laugh. And yes, God has a sense of humor. And when I'm all dour and desperate and pleading, very often the first response of the Lord is, a quip about how inappropriately I'm behaving. The first message in the first talk of the 10 talks was to be of good cheer because our Lord is of good cheer. He takes seriously the things that will save us, but he really does enjoy our company and wishes that we likewise 
enjoyed one another's company as we ought to do. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. We hope you've enjoyed this presentation by Denver Snuffer. For more information, including complete transcripts of all of Denver's lectures, please visit restorationarchives.com. If you would like to hear more Light and Truth, please take a moment to subscribe. Just search for Light and Truth in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.